All right, so we've got three more weeks uh, in the class, then Eddie's gonna take over, everybody sigh of relief, and uh, we can go from there. Let's go ahead and open with a prayer. We'll let Jeanette come on in. So Father, we do thank you for, again, this opportunity to gather. We thank you for the friendship, for the family that we have here together. And just for the love that exists, we ask you to continue to bless that. We know there are many struggling with health issues, many who are traveling, and we ask your special blessing upon them and their families. Uh, we ask now that you give us a sense of understanding and help us to uh, just come to a better understanding of your word and how we can best serve you. And we ask this through our Christ. Amen. So tonight, again, our scripture's Jewish, recognizing the Jewish heritage of the Bible. Again, we typically read it. We read it in English. We're in an English culture, and it's very easy to take our culture and superimpose that onto scripture, and without really recognizing that when we engage in scripture, we are engaging in a cross-cultural experience. Much as when we go to Guatemala or Zambia, we, it's easy to see the cultural differences there because we're surrounded by it. Uh, but when we engage scripture, we need to recognize, yes, we are engaging in cross-cultural experience. This was written in a Middle Eastern culture and in a Jewish culture. And that's very different from ours. So we've been trying to work through some of those differences, mainly to just let us be aware. We're not saying that the way we have read Scripture in the past is wrong. Not saying that at all. Not saying that our understanding of grace or faith is wrong. Our goal has been, or my goal has been, that we can add some color to our view of Scripture and hopefully deepen our roots by understanding the culture in which this book was written and how it has been delivered. Tonight, the question is, who are these people? And the goal of the class is for us to uh, gain an awareness of the groups of people mentioned in the New Testament. So tonight, predominantly or almost exclusively New Testament, and to better understand the immediate historical context of the New Testament. Uh, That's kind of our goals for tonight. A little bit of just a quick review of kinship from what... Um, Bill covered last week. It's the most used analogy of the church, is that of a family, right? It's got, we are called the bride of Christ. Uh, the church is the body of Christ. The, the, some of the most frequent terms used are brothers and sisters in the New Testament, in Paul's letters. Uh, we are adopted as sons, and just how that in the Jewish concept re, uh, kind of related to inheritance and just the significance of that. And the obligation then of uh, family. Again, our, we, we have an emphasis on family within our culture and within our country. But most of us live in what would be a, a nuclear family. Or even for us, the term is what? Empty nesters, right? Most of us live with mom and dad and kids. Kids grow up, move away, and now mom and dad in a home by themselves. It was not the culture that the scripture was written in. Quite frankly, not the culture in a lot of places today. We go to Guatemala 
and it is very much a family compound. Why? Because that's where the family land is and there's no new land. So when you go to a family's home, generally you'll see mom and dad and then sons and sons' wives and their children, potentially aunt or uncle, all in one family compound. Well, for them, the idea of taking care of family has, is very different than ours. We kind of, we want our kids to grow up and we want them what? Independent. That's what we all look forward to, is that time of independence to where they're paying their own bills, they're taking care of their own stuff, and they've got their stuff out of our house. And if, and if not, we're kind of wondering when, and son, you can find it on eBay. But that's not the culture that Scripture was written in. And at times we, we miss that family concept of how family took care of one another. And if we could be challenged or could learn from Scripture, that I think is a challenge for us to reinforce and, and have as a priority that we do consider one another as community, as family. That, that I consider Gary my brother and that obligation that goes with that. Uh, Kimmel, in talking, to, in talking to Kimmel again in Guatemala, again, I use those examples simply because it's relevant and, and it's kind of immediate. But he, he asked one of his coworkers, uh, you know, I've tried to call you and, and you're not answering your phone. And he goes, oh, I gave it to so-and-so. Why? Well, he doesn't have a phone. Well, but you need a phone. Well, he didn't have a phone. So that, that's that family taking care of things that is just kind of without being said in their culture that we kind of have to work on. And, and that's really the challenge, I think, for us. And that was really, I think, the point of the lesson. And to me, a lot of what we've talked about has been reinforcing the idea of community within the church that we, we have to kind of fight against because we are an individualistic culture. We are a culture that you make it on your own. And the church is community. And, and that we, we do take care of one another. So that's, that's kind of been a focus. Uh, tonight's going to be a different, a little bit different. It's probably not going to challenge us very much in how we're looking at Scripture. But... Um, I felt it necessary to kind of try to work through this one. This one was probably one of the more difficult to prepare for just because of the breadth of, of the different topics that we're going to hit. But to kind of set the stage as far as understanding context. So To Kill a Mockingbird, a novel written, Pulitzer Prize novel, Harper Lee wrote it in 1960 in regards to the rural South, Alabama in the 1930s. A black man accused of a crime against a white woman and a white lawyer representing him in a very racially segregated South. And it is written at a time of racial tension within our country, four years before the Civil Rights Act. And we can read To Kill a Mockingbird without that context, and we, we can kind of get the story, but really to understand the story, we do need to put it in a context. Now, for many of us, 
we kind of lived through the context. Yeah, we were alive in that historical time, so we kind of know it. But the seniors and juniors today who may be reading that book, they have to rely upon historians to relate the events to give them that context. Now, what about the historians? Well, the historians are people, and the historians are going to write history from their perspective with potentially their biases. So even in reading a history of that time, we do have to kind of, at a little bit at the mercy of the historian and how they presented it. And it's hard sometimes then to get that clear picture. And that's kind of what we're faced with with the New Testament, is we are reading uh, about events that happened in a historical context, and we're relying upon historians to kind of give us a picture of what that context was, but those historians had a bias also. And generally the bias was whoever was in power or whoever were the winners wrote the histories and definitely wrote the histories according to their bias so that they look better. We don't get a lot of history for the losers or those who weren't in power. So that's kind of some of the challenge there. So what is the, um, what is the context here? So just as we would seek to understand the context of a novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, and we would do that for English class, we should make the same effort in trying to understand the context of the New Testament. But a lot of times we just kind of move into it without really investigating, okay, what really is the context here? So I'm saying let's, let's kind of look at that and make it. We should have the same care and diligence. And all of the New Testament writers wrote within a historical context of their day. There were things happening in their day, uh, just, just as there are in ours. The New Testament introduces us to people groups. That's the best term I could kind of give it, to people and people groups. When we open up John, we're immediately hit with priests, Levites, Pharisees, rabbis. And John doesn't explain anything. John just says, the Pharisees came to John. And we go, oh, okay, who's that? There's no footnote, right? John didn't go in the Pharisees. No, now the Pharisees were these people. He, why? Because everybody understood that, that he was writing to. He didn't have to define a Pharisee because everybody knew what a Pharisee was. In Luke, first three chapters were hit with Herod, Pilate, Caesar, high priests. Who are they? In Mark, synagogue and scribes. In Matthew, again, Herod, chief priests and scribes, wise men from the east, Pharisees, Sadducees. So we have all these groups of people, these individuals, with no introduction, with no end notes, no footnotes, just presented. And we're left to try and say, okay, so who were they? And that's kind of where we're trying to go tonight. So we'll see if this works. Um, it could be a nice night for about a 20-minute nap as I tried to stay awake through some of this in doing the research. So, how does the Old Testament conclude? When we, when we kind of get through the Old Testament, 
The Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, 722 B.C., and they scattered the inhabitants out. They were just scattered out throughout the the, uh, Middle East. Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom around 597, but they allowed them to remain as a community. They took them to Babylon, and the Jews there had their own community. Remember, we have Daniel there and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there was this community of Jews then in Babylon. Probably the largest concentration of Jews was no longer Jerusalem, but in Babylon. So what did that allow them to do? Kind of allowed them to maintain their culture. Whereas the northern kingdom got scattered, the southern kingdom was allowed to to maintain their their community. Another group uh, fled to Egypt and, and settled in the Nile Delta. So we round up now with three different groups of Jews, those who were scattered, those in Babylon, and those in Egypt. They became known as the diaspora or the dispersion or those in exile. So that's a group that we have of the Jews called those in exile. Why does that matter? Well, when we open up Peter, Peter says what? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to who? To the exiles of the dispersion. Who's he writing to? Well, those in Babylon, those in Egypt, those scattered. Now we kind of see, okay, this is what Peter's talking about. He's talking in context of the Jews who have been scattered from Jerusalem due to the Assyrian and Babylonian conquest and the dispersion. So that puts that kind of into context and also kind of sets the historical perspective. So again, between the Testaments, so we're talking between Old Testament and New Testament, Alexander the Great conquers vast uh, amounts of land in the name of Greece all for the purpose of spreading Greek way of thinking. After his death, his empire is divided between four individuals. For us, the Ptolemies were Egypt and the Seleucids were Mesopotamia, that area of of basically Israel. And for a couple of hundred years, these guys fight each other for control over Israel the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. The Ptolemies come out on top initially, and they kind of leave Israel alone. But the Seleucids uh, come back in 198. They take control under Antiochus III. What did he do? He affirmed the right of the Jews to live according to the Torah. Onias III was high priest, and he traced his lineage back to Aaron, and he was described as a zealot for the law of God or for the law of Torah. So initially, under the Seleucid Empire, we have the Jews being able to maintain their religious identity. The high priest was actually a descendant of Aaron. We know that that was a requirement from Leviticus, that it be a descendant of Aaron. Rule was then passed to Antiochus IV, 
Orenticus Epiphanes. He liked the title Epiphanes because that meant God's manifest. Others called him Epimanes, which is madman. He was not very highly regarded. He was really intent upon Hellenizing, or another way of saying, spreading Greek influence in Israel. It wasn't happening fast enough for him. So he began to take measures. And in 167, he began a persecution of the Jews because he wanted full Hellenization with forceful prohibition of the Jewish religion. What does that mean? Uh, That means he uh, was denying sacrifices. He was wanting to turn the temple into a temple to Zeus. And what also happened, uh, again, a major impact here, was Jason, the brother of Onias, who was the high priest, actually bribes Antiochus IV and, in essence, purchases the high priesthood. What does that mean? That means now the high priesthood is not based on lineage. Now they are related, but it now becomes a political appointment of who's in charge. And from that point on, from this point on, every high priest was a political appointment, not based on lineage and not serving for life. It was, it was a little more political and it was a little more um, trying to keep people in line. And there were going to be sacrifices but to Zeus or to uh, the Greek gods. So it was, it, was not a, it was not to keep the high priest there in order to facilitate Jewish sacrifices. So much, it became much more of a political role than a what we would term religious rule. Um, Onias still retained some power though. So what you have is instead of a high priest serving until he died, we now have a new high priest purchasing, being appointed, and an ex-high priest that still retains a little bit of power. Why does that matter? I mean, okay, that's cool, but why? Well, what happened? What do we see in the New Testament? We see what? We see Annas and Caiaphas both described as a high priest. We see this in the trial of Jesus, right? He's taken to Annas, then he's taken to Caiaphas. And we go, well, they're kind of both referred to as high priest. Well, why? Well, Annas had been appointed uh, by Quirinius, uh, Luke 2, mentions Quirinius in around AD 6 or 6 of the common era and then Caiaphas is appointed it's uh, Caiaphas is his son-in-law by Gratus in uh, 18 and he served from 18 to 36 that's why Caiaphas is the high priest during the crucifixion of Jesus during the time of Jesus but Annas still retained power so Annas being the ex-high priest was still in power 
during that time frame and several of his family members served as high priest over the next uh, 30 or so years. What do we see in Acts chapter 4? The next day their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, their high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. This gives us some background now of what we're reading in Acts. And again, Anna served from 6 to 16, Caiaphas 18 to 36, and John 36 to 37. But they were not serving because of their lineage. They were serving because of an appointment by the Roman rule. And that all started under Antiochus. Antiochus also implemented some extreme measures. He forbade the burnt offerings, sacrifices, and libations in the temple. He erected altars and shrines in the villages, ordered the sacrifice of pigs and other impure animals. He eliminated circumcision, burned the Torah, and converted the temple into a temple of Zeus. That was his goal of trying to say, I'm going to forcibly assimilate the Jews into a Greek culture there was already an assimilation that was happening. There were already Jews who were favorable to Hellenism. And if Antiochus had not taken these extreme measures and just let things slide, there's a chance Judaism kind of disappears. Because it's that, it's that frog in the kettle, right? You just kind of keep turning up the heat before it boils. It it doesn't know it. And this Hellenization was taking place in Jerusalem. What happened was uh, in a small town, Modin, 17 miles northwest of Jerusalem, Mattathias Hasmoneus refused to sacrifice on a pagan altar. A fellow Jew was going to comply with the edict coming from Antiochus to do that. Mattathias kills him and then flees to the mountains with his sons and other followers. He does this out of zeal for the law. What what did we say about the last high priest? What was he known as? A zealot. For the law. So we have this concept now coming into Judaism of someone who has a zeal for the law and is able to take then a drastic action of killing a fellow Jew in order to try and preserve the law. Also, supporters, uh, the Hasidians, the pious ones, they also supported Mattathias. These were possibly the forerunners of the Pharisees. We're going to get there here in a bit. But these two groups joined together. Judas, his son, was nicknamed Maccabee. He leads a revolt against the Seleucids. And in 164, almost miraculously, in essence, the Jews regain Jerusalem and they purify the temple that then prompts a new festival called Hanukkah, the festival of lights or dedication. 
It is around, it is on the 25th day of Kislev. It's normally in our November, December. So now because of what Judas Maccabees does, it is known as the Maccabean Revolt. I think it is an evidence of God working between the Testaments to save the nation of Israel, or at least the temple. The temple was going uh, by way of Greek Hellenization, if not for this effort. And, and for, for the Israelites, for the Jews here, to win over the Greek army and take back Jerusalem was, would not have been what we would have thought to be militarily possible. Uh, but they do secure that, they do retain that. Why is Hanukkah, what is that? Well, we see in John, at the time of the festival of dedication, what festival is this? This is Hanukkah. So we see this mentioned in the New Testament. Jesus is walking in the temple, so he has gone to Jerusalem to support this festival, even though this festival was not authorized really in the Torah. We still see Jesus celebrating this festival. And in essence, we see a a question about his messiahship. And if we put that in context, there could be a question to where they're asking, are you in the same vein as Judas Maccabee? Because again, this festival is relating back to that. So are you the messiah like Judas Maccabees was? And are you now going to lead a revolt against Rome and kick Rome out of Jerusalem? That is some of what is implied in this interaction right here. So we see that Israel is still looking for that military leader as they had in Judas Maccabees to kick Rome out like he kicked Greece out. So the Hasmoneans, again it was Mattathias Hasmoneus, We call it the Maccabean Revolt, but it was really the Hasmonean family. They ruled Israel until about 37 BC. They expanded their borders almost to that of where David and Solomon were. The king and high priest often were combined. This was very political. Uh, It was this time period was filled with assassinations, bribery plots, civil war. Um, This was not a return to... uh, honor Torah and honor God. This was very much power oriented. But they did retain their culture. Um, And then you've got John here capturing Idumea. And from there he required all of those individuals to become Jews. Now, Idumea is from Edom. Edom is who? From Esau, meaning red. So we have kind of this area of land that really was settled by Esau. We have Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob of the chosen, Esau not chosen. And that is important. Why? Because Herod is appointed king and he is from Idumenia. And technically he calls himself a Jew because of what happened uh, in the conquest Josephus records that he was also of Maccabean descent. It's kind of odd and a little odd in the family tree. But he marries Mariami, who was also a Hasmonean. Again, Maccabean in nature. And Herod kills most of his family. 
He kills his wife, he kills his kids, he kills his cousins. All for the sake of maintaining his rule. He was very jealous. He was a great builder. But as a ruler with his jealousy and suspect, he had no trouble killing family members in order to retain his power base. So it is with no surprise then that we read in Matthew that when Herod feels like he's been tricked by the wise men and the wise men say, hey, there's a king born in Bethlehem, it's no surprise that Herod would kill potential rivals. He's killed his own wife. So again, seeing that cultural context kind of puts Herod's actions in context for us where we can see why that action would have been taken. So during this time, Rome is ruling over Israel. They set up governors to administrate it. Pontius Pilate rules from 26 to 36. Again, that puts it in the time of Jesus. And he was one of the longer tenured reigns. He retained Caiaphas as high priest for his entire reign. So Caiaphas was appointed by the predecessor of Pilate. Pilate said, you know, I'm cool with that and just let him reign. The next guy, after Pilate, kicks Caiaphas out and puts in a new high priest. His duties were primarily military. It was primarily a peacekeeping force, maintaining order, but he was also head of the judicial system. So that is why we can see when we have Jesus' trial, they first go to Annas. Why? Because he's kind of the patriarch of the high priestly family. Then to Caiaphas, he's the appointed high priest. Then to Herod, and then we see Pilate. So there's, that's kind of seeing all of our power structure in Jerusalem at the time of, uh, of Jesus. Uh, Pilate's the only one who had the authority for capital punishment. And that's why we see Pilate, again, being able to uh, send Jesus to be crucified is because that was the power. It is a different Herod. It is, it is Herod Agrippa, his son. So the Herod the Great that we were talking about a moment ago died probably around 4 or 5 BC, uh, pretty much after the birth of Christ. And then um, his kingdom was divided up among his sons and Herod Agrippa gets uh, Israel's portion. So thank you uh, for that. Yeah, different Herod. Not much better. So now into some of the people groups um, that, that we, that we were, were looking at here. So again, we're introduced to the Sadducees. So the Sadducees were generally an upper class, uh, socially and economically portion of, of the Jews. They were mainly concerned with the maintenance of the temple. So most of the priests, and certainly the high priests, were Sadducees. That is also why, after the destruction of the temple, we don't see much about them. Uh, because their role as maintaining the temple, temple's destroyed, kind of roll, your job's gone. The Sadducees pretty much fade out after that. Again, most priests were Sadducees, but not all Sadducees were priests. They did not take part in the Maccabean War. 
but they did sympathize with Hellenistic adoption. So they were, they were okay with the Greek influence that was coming into the land. And they did exert considerable power uh, over the land, especially through the Sanhedrin and the office of the high priest. The Sanhedrin was a governing body, predominantly uh, made up of Sadducees. Pharisees were on the Sanhedrin, and they were always vying to see, uh, again, Democrats or Republicans, Sadducees or Pharisees, who's going to be the controlling power in the Sanhedrin. For the most part, the Sadducees were. Some of their main beliefs. They believed that there is no fate. They took destiny into their own hands, not believing that God would intervene. Um, and I, I, I think I'll um, relate this a little more once we get to the Pharisees. They did not believe in the resurrection, and they rejected the oral Torah. So again, we have the written Torah. We talked about this several weeks ago. The written Torah would be what? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books of Moses. The oral Torah were the, was the explanations given on how to obey the written Torah. We're going to see that the Pharisees accepted the oral Torah, well, mainly because they wrote it. And, and understand that at that time it was oral. It was not written down. Remember, it's an oral culture. So these would have been things that were uh, spoken of. And Jesus uh, mentions this in many of his interactions. They denied the existence of angels and demons. And they say man has uh, free will. I'm going to put that in quotes because it's not how we interpret free will. We are influenced by uh, the Reformation and that debate on sovereignty and free will. And that kind of colors how we understand this term. So for them, free will was, I have the ability to influence those in power or even um, take action against those in power, and I'm not relying upon God to intervene for me. So it's more of a power um, understanding of my ability to make a choice and go against those in power. Well, that's kind of easy to say if you're the one in power. When you say, I have the power to act against others and you're the one in power, of course that's what you're going to believe. Okay? We're going to see the other sides of this here in a little bit. And they were more of a conservative group. Again, they did not accept the oral Torah. They kind of wanted to stay with just the written Torah. Acts 23, we see uh, Scripture actually giving us some of this information. What does it say? Paul noticed that some were Sadducees and others were Pharisees. Basically, he's saying some were Democrats, others were Republicans. He called out to the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, son of the Pharisee. I'm on trial concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. That's not going to produce a fight, is it? When he said this, a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees and the assembly was divided. And the parenthetical note, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection or angels or spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge all three. So understanding this divide between them helps us kind of see what Paul did. 
Um, you know, it's like somebody going in to the Senate and saying, well, I'm, I'm not for any border wall and just seeing what happened with that, you know. Um, that's, that's basically what he did. We have another group called the Essenes. Now, they're not mentioned in the New Testament, but they were in existence at the time of Christ. Truly, they are a sect. Uh, and a sect would be a group of people with somewhat different religious beliefs uh, than kind of the larger group in, with which they're a part of. They did separate out. They lived in Qumran, which is in the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. So you've got Jerusalem, to the east of that, Jordan River come down, the Dead Sea. So on that portion of the Dead Sea is where we have the community of Qumran, and that is where the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were found. Again, a significant find as far as archaeology and our understanding of this time frame. They felt they were the only true Jews. They were the only Jews going to heaven, to put it in our terminology. They were the light. Everyone else was the darkness. Pharisees, Sadducees, they were a very closed community. And again, kind of felt like uh, they had it figured out. They were maintaining their loyalty to Torah. They were not going to be Hellenized and they had separated themselves out. For them, uh, again, they were focused on piety and purity, not as a way of earning salvation, but as a way of expressing that they were God's chosen people. They could not because they weren't at the temple. So, uh, so yeah, they could not sacrifice. Uh, again, sacrifice could only happen at the temple. That's, we're going to hit that here in a bit. For them, everything was in God's hands. So what did we say about the Sadducees? The Sadducees kind of said, everything's in my hands. Well, they were in power. Of course it's in my hands. What about the Essenes? Everything's in God's hands. Why? They had no power. They were, they were completely isolated. So they were, uh, would have been, in essence, a pacifist from that. They would not have um, been going in a way of revolting. We have another group, uh, again, called the scribes. Uh, they were a part of the minority who were actually literate. They were the ones who transcribed the Torah for more copies. They were experts on the law of Moses. Sometimes they would have been called a lawyer. Again, what do we see in uh, Nehemiah? This is uh, kind of what we see the role of a scribe. The Nehemiah the governor, Evner the, um, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law. Teacher of the law be another term for scribe. And the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, This day is holy to your Lord. Do not mourn or weep, for all these people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Again, just before that in Nehemiah, the Levites, he names them, uh, instructed the people of the law while they were standing there. They, here's what the scribes did. They read from the book of the law of God. That would have been in Hebrew. Making it clear, that would have been translating it to Aramaic or the language that uh, they would be speaking, and giving the meaning, interpreting so that they understood, 
so that the people understood what was being read. So this is really what we see the role of the scribe. It is, it is very much just around Torah, explaining, understanding Torah, and explaining it and relating it as to how the laws are to be interpreted. Uh, would have been the role of the scribes. Some of the scribes were Pharisees, but there's still a little distinction amongst them. Okay, so now we get into the Pharisee group. We all like to pick on the Pharisees. They may have begun around, again, the time of the Maccabean Revolt. So that group that sided with the Maccabees, the purity, the pious ones, uh, probably was a bit of the forerunner to the Pharisees and possibly also the Essenes, that group there. They were opposed to the Sadducees and during the Hasmonean dynasty or the Maccabean dynasty, each of them wrestled each other for control. That's where they were trying to control the, the Sanhedrin. That's where they were trying to control influence with the king, uh, who was, again, the Maccabean. As we saw in Acts, they do believe in angels, demons, and the resurrection. They really weren't at that time a sect like the Essenes. They did not separate out, but they, they were kind of this loose group. The emphasis was on individual purity and stressing the purity laws of Torah. What they did, though, was they, they basically took the Levitical purity codes and began to apply them to themselves. In essence, saying we're all priests. So remember we talked a couple of weeks ago about the different levels of purity within Jerusalem or within the Jews. You had the common person who had certain purity codes to follow. And then the next level down would have been the Levites, which had an additional set. And then the priest, an additional set. And the high priest, even more stringent. So the Pharisees are taking those purity codes that applied to the Levites and, and kind of saying, we're going to make those apply to all of us. It was really an attempt to maintain the national identity, maintain their Jewishness. They did emphasize teaching of Torah through the synagogue, and they did hold to the oral law as binding. Why? Because, well, they were kind of the originators of the oral law. They would discuss one another, and they would have their case rulings, and then refer back to that. They did act as a political pressure group, and a group concerned for purity. So let's not think the Pharisees are just a religious group. There is a political uh, influence here. Uh, they weren't just in this for their piety. Uh, there's, a, there's an element of power going on. And as Roman rule came in, they lost power with the Maccabean rulers. They had none left with the Romans. The Sadducees had all that power. So now they, they, in essence, lost that sphere of influence. So now they're trying to take it to the common people in the villages. And that's why they had more of the support in the villages and in the countryside. They were trying to protect the symbols of national identity. They're seeing the Hellenization come in, and, and they are they're wanting to keep Jews being Jews. And the three main symbols were what? Circumcision, Sabbath, 
and the purity codes, kind of the dietary. That's what identified the Jews. Those were the three main ones. So what about circumcision? Well, there's not much of a debate on circumcision, right? I mean, are you circumcised? I don't know. Kind of? No, that's yes, no. Okay, that's, that's pretty binary there. So there wasn't really much debate on circumcision. It was not where you were you circumcised for the right reason. No, you're either circumcised or not. So no debate really on that. What about Sabbath? Well, God said what? Honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, don't do any work. Okay, so what's work? Because God didn't go into that in a lot of detail, did he? So if I'm going to honor the Sabbath and I'm not supposed to work and I'm concerned about my national identity, what do I need to do? I need to start defining work. And I need to start putting this fence up that says, here's, here's how we're going to say, here's what work is. And that's where the oral, law, oral Torah came in. So work means what? I can't make a brick. What's making a brick? It's water and clay. Well, I can't combine water and clay then. So what does that mean? Well, you really can't spit into clay and form it because that's now work. And what does Jesus do? He spits into clay and puts it on the eyes, right? So there were a lot of debates on Sabbath and how to keep the Sabbath. What about purity? Well, there were purity laws given. But then we've got, well, to really set this fence up, you know, you have to wash your hands a certain way before you eat. And if you don't wash your hands in that certain way, well, now you're not following the oral Torah and the purity codes. What's the complaint that they make to Jesus? Your disciples aren't washing their hands the right way, so you obviously are not following Torah the way we, and that's where the debates came, right? It was over Sabbath and purity. It was out of a desire to follow Torah, to follow God. And, and when I looked at that, I kind of thought, you know, without hopefully getting in too much trouble, I kind of thought, I know these people. Because as I grew as I grew up, I kind of go, I kind of know what that's talking about, right? Because for us, for me growing up, it was baptism really wasn't a point of discussion. You either are or you aren't. Kind of like circumcision. Now occasionally we'd throw in for the right reason. But for the most part, it wasn't a big discussion in my growing up years. What about Sabbath? Well, Sabbath what? Sunday and worship. Well, now I started seeing, okay, what, what can we do or can't do on worship? Who can or can't do in worship? Can we eat or not eat in a building? Can you have a kitchen or not a kitchen? And all these issues centered around worship. And what did we do? We found fences trying to be made. Because if we, if we make a fence and you don't cross the fence, then you know you're not crossing God's boundary. But the problem with that was what? 
agreeing on where the fence should be, and we had trouble agreeing where the fence would be, and we had different fences, and then we wound up saying, well, if you cross the fence, then you're really not a part of us. You've lost our national identity. It was, it was all about identity and who, who we see as being within fellowship. And it was out of a desire to follow God and to be people of God's word. But we did set up the fences. And we did struggle with, with Sunday morning. And also, Keith, just a second and I'll get there. We also struggled with purity. We didn't call it purity. But it was, in some areas, do you play cards or dominoes? Is mixed, for some reason we called it mixed bathing. And I never understood, I said, I'm not ever taking a bath with, but it was mixed swimming, you know, can we do mixed swimming? How about dancing or prom? You know, I, where, I, where I went to high school, was a junior-senior banquet, not a prom, because we, we didn't want to encourage dancing. What were those? Those were our purity codes with our fences. Is there social drinking? Not drinking. Smoking? Not smoking. I mean, all of these were, those were our purity identity markers that we set up our fences for. And what do we see Jesus doing? Jesus attacks their fences and says, no, here's what Torah really is. Here's what serving God is. And we complain that the, that the Pharisees were legalist. And we hear that term a lot. And as I look at that, I'm going, no, they, they really weren't legalists. They were not trying to earn their salvation. And even that terminology is a little, um, is a little anachronistic where we're taking our term and putting it back on theirs. So within the Pharisees, often we, again, we, we say they were legalists and they were, they were uh, trying to earn their salvation. That was a system of works and they were very works oriented. And as I look at it, I'm going, I, I don't really see that. And, and here's why I say that, because the Old Testament is not a, a salvation by works. It is a covenant relationship. Israel was God's chosen people. They were in a covenant and you didn't do something to get into the covenant. I mean, you were circumcised for the males. But they, it was a covenant relationship. And they, the way they thought of salvation was very different than the way we think of salvation. We hear the word salvation and we think what? Immediately we think an individual's destiny of heaven or hell. And that's, that's about the only way we think of salvation. Any disagreement to that? Um, that it's, it's individual and it's concerning heaven and hell and my soul's final resting place. But if we look at the Jewish concept of salvation, when we see the children of Israel at the Red Sea and you've got the sea on one side and Pharaoh coming down on the other, Moses says what? See the salvation of the Lord. And what's the salvation? The waters open up, they walk across on dry land. It was physical and it was communal. The entire nation was physically saved from the Egyptians by walking across on dry land. Samuel's mother praises God for her salvation. What was her salvation? She was barren, now she has a son. 
So for the Jews, salvation was very much um, being saved from your enemies and having God's blessings. And that's what Moses does at, at the end of Deuteronomy. He says what? If you will follow Torah, then you will have God's salvation. You'll have his blessings, his protection. If you don't follow Torah, you're going to have cursings. So they didn't think of it in terms of eternal destiny of my soul. It was in terms of God's protection. So to say that the Pharisees were works-oriented is to really kind of put our terminology that we've inherited from a couple of hundred years of, of in essence, a way of thinking coming out of some of the Middle Ages and putting it back on them. The Old Testament was very grace-oriented. God chose the Israelites out of grace. They did not deserve it. They did not earn it. God simply chose it, and God then cared for them throughout the centuries for the coming of Christ. So as we look through the New Testament, we see the Pharisees as individuals who are uh, concerned about national identity. They're concerned about purity. Their problem was they, they expanded it too far. They took my personal view of purity I said, my personal view of purity needs to be your view of purity. And that's where I think Jesus starts to condemn them. Because he said what? You know, do what the Pharisees tell you to do, just don't act like them. So he wasn't complaining about what they were saying, he was complaining about how they were acting. And and that they were misapplying Torah, and they were missing the main point. What was the Old Testament What does um, Malachi say? What's the goal? Love, um, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Has that changed? It hasn't. And as Keith said, you know, it's, it's, what does it mean to to do justice? What does it mean to love mercy? We want to put the fence around that. But that's what it's always been are those three concepts. Um, again, the Pharisees lacked power, so they had to collude with those. They did collude with the Herodians we see in the New Testament. And you see Paul. Paul was a Pharisee, right? We saw that in a prior scripture. But in order for him to persecute the church, what did he need? He needed permission. And that's where we see the Pharisees don't have power. They needed permission from somebody in order to have their power. Um, Again, very quickly here, again, it was not a system of self-salvation that we currently ascribe to them. They were concerned with honoring God, following his covenant character, and the pursuit of the redemption of Israel. Some had a zeal for Torah. Uh, Again, going back to the Maccabees, uh, that zeal. And what do we see about Paul? What does he say of himself? In Galatians, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church, tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the tradition of my father. So there's a hint into at least one section or one segment of the Pharisees in their zealousness for Torah. And for their stance, again, the Sadducees, everything's in my hands. For the Essenes, everything's in God's hands. For the Pharisees, it's kind of that middle ground. 
God is in control, but if he needs to use me for revolt or for whatever, then I'm certainly available. So they, they kind of struck that middle ground uh, in that. eighty seventy was a major turning point for the Jews. Uh, in 66, there was a Jewish revolt. They expelled Rome from Jerusalem. Nero sends in some forces. And uh, in 69, Titus is sent. Titus surrounds the city, and he destroys it. Some of the historians report that Christians were not in Jerusalem. Why? Because they remembered back what Jesus said. When you see the city encompassed about, flee to the mountains, uh, because it's going to get wiped out, and you don't want to be in the city at that time. Uh, so with the destruction of the Jerusalem, the zealots are destroyed. With the destruction of the temple, the Sadducees vanish. Rome occupying the land, the Essenes fade out. That leaves the Pharisees really as the only major group left. And from this group arises the rabbinical period where we have the rabbis. Rabbi means teacher. It's really a sign of respect. Jesus is called a rabbi. In, in many passages. But we need to recognize the term did not have the same connotation as it did after AD 70. After AD 70, we start having a formal office of a rabbi. And now there is an ordination for a rabbi. It, it is specific duties. So at the time of Jesus, it, it, it's, I'm not sure if the writers were using the term rabbi back or if, if it really was just a, a more of a a greeting of honor and not so much an official office. Now the thing is, Jesus does act like certain rabbis. He does call 12. What, is he, what are they to do? He appointed 12 for what reason? That they might be with him in order to learn from him. That was typical of a rabbi. Uh, what does he say in Luke 6? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. So his goal of calling the 12 was what? So that they could be like him. That was kind of what a rabbi did. Now he was different from a rabbi in that rabbis always quoted a former rabbi or former rabbinical source in their arguments. Rabbi so-and-so said this, and that's, that's who they quote. Who did Jesus quote? He quoted himself. He says, you have heard, but now I say. So that was different from a, a normal rabbi. A normal rabbi, rabbi, the disciple would choose the rabbi. The disciple would come up and say, can I be your follower? What do we see of Jesus? We see the opposite. Jesus chose his disciples. So even though there are certain aspects of Jesus' life that conform to what a a typical Jewish rabbi would be, there are other elements that aren't that. So when we see Jesus as a rabbi, it's, I would say, let's just, okay, but let's make sure we're not reading too much into that and recognize him as a teacher. So the final points here is the synagogue. There's uncertainty of when it developed. Again, as we go into the New Testament, all of a sudden we're hit with Jesus goes to the synagogue. It was not authorized in the Old Testament. There's no mention of the synagogue in the Old Testament, no mention of, of whether it should be. Some think it came in the Babylonian exile, others in the third century in Egypt. But by the time that Jesus has come along, they, it's a major part of the social and religious life in Israel. Uh, it is the place where the Torah was read. And we don't know much of its liturgy, of what happened. Um, 
until, we see, until it gets to about the second century. We do know some of what happened, though. That's where Torah was read. So we find a reading of Torah and then a reading of the Nevi'im, the prophets, following that. And we see that when Jesus is in Nazareth. So he goes to the synagogue. He's asked to read from the scroll of Isaiah. That's the prophet. So we know that at that point of the service, it was uh, after the Torah reading. We do have hints of what happens in the synagogue in the New Testament times from the New Testament. Uh, Again, in um, Luke 4, 15, he was teaching in their synagogue and everyone praised him. He stood up to read in the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So what happens in the synagogue is teaching and reading from Torah. What What do we see in Acts? For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And again in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. What's he talking about? He's talking about the synagogue, and that's where the Torah is being read. He's saying, you know what, Gentiles, if you want to understand Torah, you can go to the synagogue on Sabbath, and you can hear Moses, and you can hear what the Torah says. So in summary, the first century was a time of uncertainty, political unrest. Uh, Jesus comes into this historical concept, con- uh, context. There were many factions of Judaism. You can't just say, here's Judaism in the first century. You had different sections of Pharisees, different sections of Sadducees, so it, it wasn't this homogenous group. Uh, again, there was a lot of political overtones to it, a lot of people wanting to revolt uh, over Rome. And so this, this unrest was there. And finally, Jesus comes in, declares he is Messiah, and with 12 men, he in essence changes the world. So it's really no different now, is it? We have political unrest. We have uncertainty. Uh, it's really no different. And Jesus comes in, and he is Messiah. He was Messiah then. He is Messiah now. And so as we go through the New Testament, hopefully from tonight we have um, maybe a little better understanding of some of these individuals and some of these groups that we see. And we, as we read through that, we can see it with a little, maybe a little different lens than we've looked at in the past. Uh, next week we're going to look at some of the miracles of Jesus. And then uh, the final week we're going to look at a little bit of how Jews went about interpreting or hermeneutics uh, from that standpoint and how it might apply to us, and I'll get myself probably in a lot of trouble, but that's the last week, and I can turn it over to Eddie. So I appreciate you guys hanging extra and for your attention. Thank you very much, and hopefully next week we'll see you. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.